Good morning, everyone. <laughs> My name's Jared. I'm uh, one of the elders here, along with Tripp and Ryan and Brad. And I'm excited to share with you this morning. Uh, I Last week, um, for those of you that were here, we began a series on worship. And this is actually one of my favorite things in the world to talk about, probably. Um, some of you probably don't know this, but back in the early days of SOMA, I sort of moonlighted as a worship director, not doing anywhere near as good of a job as Danielle and Katie did this morning, but um, it's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I love talking about and theorizing about how we can um, pour out our hearts to God. One of my favorite quotes about worship is that um, it's actually deeper than singing and just lifting our voices. It's this intrinsic act where all of life, in some ways, uh, we're created um, unceasing outpouring, is the way it's phrased, which means that all of our life gets poured out towards something, whether it be towards Jesus or towards something else that we're placing our hope in. And so with that sort of framing, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about liturgy. This series is sort of focused on... Um, the idea of liturgy, which um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's it's not this high church, sort of uh, archaic or hard to understand concept. It's actually a very mundane, everyday concept. We go to the gas station. You have a series of uh, events that happen when you go to the gas station. You take the take your card out, you put it in, you take the um, the nozzle out, you put it in your car, and then you close it up and drive away. And so all liturgy actually is, is a series of events that is uh, sort of a habit or a normative thing to accomplish a task, and it actually becomes sort of this thing that you don't even think about anymore, but has this intrinsic power in your life, um, way more than filling up your car with gas. But uh, So every church has a liturgy, whether it's intentional or unintentional, and it's the story that the actions that we do when we get together, the things that we that our gathering is comprised of, it's the story um, the, those actions tell that actually begins to form who we are as a people. And so it's important um, when we acknowledge that power of what we do when we get together to actually examine what is being formed in us. And is it unintentional or is it intentional? Is it Jesus being formed in us or is it emotionalism or... Uh, some sort of cold, dead classroom vibe, um, or are we actually coming together to, to feast on Jesus together? So last week we started with call to worship and adoration, which is sort of God's initiating, like we believe that in creation God initiated, he revealed himself to us. And our first response is worship when we see the glory of God. Today we get into confession, and you may have the same first thought I did, that what for me, in my mind, when I first think about it, confession can kind of seem like an antonym to worship. Like it kind of seems like, well, we're here to worship. Why do I want to be introspective and like sort of melancholy? But um, I hope by the end of our time this morning that we'll see how worship is actually only possible when true confession happens. So I'll read our scripture for this morning, and then we'll jump in and get going. This is out of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word um, that helps us articulate um, the deep longings of our heart. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that as we engage a topic that can be hard to get into, that you would do that gentle work of of softening of our our hearts, of revealing um, the inward parts that maybe are secret right now, um, but also affirming that we are beloved, that this... These things that we need to confess, these things that um, that have happened are not the truest thing about us, that you have called us beloved and you've made us your children. And so I just pray that you would um, not allow us to uh, go either of the two extremes this morning of being um, callous to what we're going to talk about and somehow um, somehow believing that we're um, we're beyond this need. Um, but also not being crushed and somehow feeling that um, that we are so bad that we couldn't possibly be loved because you have poured out your love for us in Jesus. So I just pray that you would affirm our hearts this morning and that you would do the work of convicting us and um, and also of affirming us as your beloved children. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we began in Act 1 last week. We met the characters in the story. We discovered the world. God creates us. He reveals himself to us as Father, which is an incredible act in itself. He invites us to join him in his creative work. He actually set up creation in such a way where he says, this is amazing, make it better. Like, Join me in bringing out the hidden potential in my creation. Um, But most importantly, he dwells with us. And you get this amazing picture in Genesis 1, the seven-day creation structure 
is actually a seven-day temple dedication structure where God is just lighting up the world, bringing color and animals and all of creation as he celebrates that he has created this world and he is coming to dwell in it with his creation. And it's just this amazing celebration of God's presence being manifest in a people in his creation. And everything was awesome. Like there was no sin, no brokenness, no sadness, no shame. Um, And today we interact too. And for those of you that are familiar with story structure, you know that at the end of Act 1, there's this thing called an inciting moment. And it's common to all good stories in every medium where a choice is made that sort of sets the story in motion. It sort of unsettles whatever equilibrium there was in the first place and begins this quest, as it's often called. And, yeah, so we know in our context that that celebration came to an abrupt end, Um, that mankind, despising God's love and care for them, decided to go their own way to do what seemed right to them and to leave the party, essentially, Um, and human brokenness has flowed out of that reality ever since. That wound continues to bleed. And so, while our first response to God's loving revelation of himself is worship and adoration, we have an immediate pivot to a second response. As we look at God's beautiful holiness, all that he is, it doesn't take us long to feel the awful realization that something's not right within me. Something's not right within us. Somehow, I am no longer like that. But maybe I once was. I feel some knowledge that there's some seed of that still within me. Maybe it's intangible. Maybe you have difficulty. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll say, well, we're all sinners. But you have difficulty putting a, you know, a, a circle around what that thing is that the ways that that brokenness has played out in your life. Or maybe there are specific things from this morning, this week, that are kind of weighing on you. And whatever it is, it leads to an inward cry that I think is common to all of humanity. And it sounds something like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, inside of God's holiness, we sense our personal and communal uncleanness. And it can be explained as a threefold admission where we look out at the world around us and we say, obviously, the world is not as it should be. It's not the way it was meant to be. We can even look around our church and see people that we have hurt or people that have hurt us and say, we as a church are not the way we were meant to be. And then we can look within our own hearts and say, I'm not the way I was meant to be. Something's wrong. And as uh, theologian William Dyrness calls this, it's a healthy orientation reality. It's not sugarcoating. It's not whitewashing anything. It's being aware of the brokenness that we're walking in. Not in a way where we're overwhelmed by it, but in a way that we are acknowledging and being truthful about it. And we can begin to feel like David felt um, in the psalm. He said, my for I know my, transgression, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And these words kind of depict almost a, uh, a, a creation of this looming brokenness becoming almost a character in our life, like a person standing in front of us, accusing us. 
And can I just say that if we begin to feel that that is the truest thing about us, if we feel that the thing, the ways that we, um, we're broken or the ways that we make mistakes is the truest thing about us, this is a lie. Um, this is not what confession is. This is not um, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Um, because the truth is you're actually made beautiful in God's image. Um, he delights in you. He loves you. And you've been taken captive by the sin, that force that's looming over you. So most of us, I don't know how you normally deal with that when that, those thoughts pop into your mind. Um, for me, it feels overwhelming, and so a lot, oftentimes I feel oppressed by it, and so I'll just try not to think about it. Maybe if I don't look directly at it, um, I can just avoid it completely. And it reminds me of, it's funny, as I started thinking about, well, what are the things you confess? Like, stand in front of a room of people and just like lay it all out there. And the first thing that popped into my head is like probably not a, I don't know. It's not one of the stereotypical, well, this one time when I was driving, I got really angry and, you know, I flipped the bird. It's like, it's sort of like hard to communicate in this one situation exactly how broken this was, but I'm going to try. So, so Robin and I, we have a pretty like close, um, talking relationship. We share a lot of like what we're processing in life and uh, things that we're learning. And so this was a number of months ago. She had been sharing with me this thing she felt convicted about. And I, you know, had listened and helped her process it a lot. And, uh, and it felt like she was growing a lot. And we were really excited that, you know, she felt like the Holy Spirit had revealed this thing to her. Um, and then one day, I was tense about something. I don't remember what it was. I don't know what, what had me so on edge, but she said something that seemed to challenge my assessment of a situation or made me feel belittled, even though she didn't mean for it to feel that way, and made me feel discounted. And so what do I have in my back pocket? What immediately pops into my brain? I say, well, that's just because blah, 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 blah. And so now that sin that she had confided in me and like processed with me and had been growing through, I've now weaponized it. Um, and so that is like some of the most convicting sin I think we've gone through in our marriage. Um, just almost having like, what the heck was that? Like after that happened, like looking at it, sort of an out-of-body experience, like, that was not me. Like, why, why did I just do that? And I think it, it just it loomed over me for days after that, and I kept thinking about it, knowing there was nothing, no matter how much I apologized, there was nothing I could really do to make it right other than asking for her forgiveness. And I think as we look at how we handle those situations when they come up, there's a few different well-trotted paths that we can walk through, ways that we can manage our sin and brokenness or, or ways that we can try to, um, to get, it, get out from under it. And so the first one um, that we're going to talk about this morning is called the it's okay path. And I think this starts when we're kids. And I think for those of us who are parents, this could just be my own neurosis, but I think we have to be careful the words we use when kids are working through conflicts. Because millions per day happen. So it's like, it's a laboratory of learning 
conflict management and forgiveness when you have children. And so, picture this scenario. Kid A hurts Kid B. Parents from both kids come to the situation and say, oh, did you, you know, work through whatever happened? And they say, oh, did you apologize? Kid A apologizes to Kid B. What does Kid B normally 90% of the time say? It's okay. And I think the reality is it's not okay. Someone was hurt. And see, we as humans just arbitrarily judge when it is, when it isn't okay. And it's a way of moving past and not being bound up in whatever just happened. And one of the most awkward things as a parent, and probably as a human, an individual, is to pivot and to say, do you forgive me? Or to say, I forgive you if you're on the um, side that was hurt can be really awkward. And it's even harder for adults because I think we know on some level that there was pain, it happened, I didn't imagine it, and it needs to be addressed somehow. We can't just say it's okay. And I think Tim Keller acknowledges this reality when he says the essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. And so he's saying that the only way to work through those situations is actually take on the pain so that the relationship can be healed. As we remember, Jesus absorbed our pain and sin. I can do likewise as I look to him, but only as I look to him. Because if I try to do it somehow as the source of forgiveness, then I will end up getting crushed under the weight of that myself. So it becomes a conduit where Jesus' forgiveness is extended to others. But do you ever guys ever do you guys ever find yourself after forgiving someone wanting them to still feel your pain? You're like, I know we worked through that conflict, but you really still should be feeling what you did to me. Like that was not okay. Because if that's true, then you haven't forgiven them. That's not forgiveness. And see, the it's okay path is where David starts at the beginning of our psalm. If you recall the story. First he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he, said, he has one of his, uh, his men bring her to him. He sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and then he says, well, i got to make this okay. So he brings her husband home from battle, and he says, well, maybe if she, he just goes to her and, and sleeps with her, then the timing will be close enough that I'll be off the hook. Um, and out of loyalty to his fellow soldiers and to God... Um, he refuses. He won't go home to his wife. And so David's only option is, well, the only way to sweep this under the rug, to make it okay, to handle this pain and hopefully make it so no one else is hurt or finds out about it, I'll just have his commander send him to the front lines and he'll be, he'll be gone within days. See, when we brush off or minimize or hide sin, it's us inwardly screaming, it's okay, it's okay, just don't think about it. There are two specific forms of the it's okay mindset that I think play out in our text. The first is we relativize it. Maybe when you're arguing with your spouse, you start to feel that conviction of, ah, I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually not in the right, like, this is on me. 
But then that like sense to self-justify wells up and you say, well, but she started all this, you know, if we wouldn't be fighting right now if she hadn't or if he hadn't. Um, it's sort of the she hit me first moment that you have in kids. Whoever, whoever started it is obviously to blame, at least in common parenting speak. Inevitably, we feel the futility knowing that it's so much bigger than that little interpersonal spat. There's no way it's, it can be reduced down to that. And it's as David says in verse 4, against you and you only, God, that we have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, not I, may be justified in your words and blameless in your, in your not my judgment. See, there's no escaping it because we know on some level that he sees us and knows us and that his judgment is unimpeachable. There's no way that we can explain it away or do a he said, she said. And I think that's why relativizing it is such an attractive option because if there is no absolute unimpeachable judgment, then it's just people. Someone sins against you, you sin against them, and it's all relative. It's okay, seems like a viable solution. But this does nothing to actually solve our problem. It does nothing to cleanse us, to renew our hearts, or to liberate us from the weight we feel. It just kicks the can down the road. And so the second form of it's okay is that we reduce it. And I'm going to try something. If any of you guys are fans of Frozen, don't leave me hanging. Uh, You know the song Fixer Upper? So there's this one line in it that the first time I heard it, I kind of like jumped. So finish the end of this line for me. People make bad choices if they're mad or scared or stressed. Y'all left me hanging. (laughs) Um, And so my first reaction when I hear that is like, really, that's all? Like those are the only times I'm allowed to make bad choices is if I'm mad if I'm scared, or if I'm stressed. Otherwise, it's on me. Apparently, those are the three categories in humanity where you're like absolved of any wrongdoing because you were mad, and so you did that thing. And see, it's a worldview statement. It's not just a kid's song. It's a worldview statement hidden in harmless Disney packaging. And just a little earlier in the song, it says unequivocally, people don't really change. Which totally makes sense. If you're saying there's no hope of people changing, then we must reduce any hurt, any pain, any injustice to just a momentary exception to the rule. It can't be anything deeper than that. Because people don't change, so we would be without hope if we were going to say that this was a deeper issue. But David sees how flimsy that is, saying in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, it's not a momentary exception. The problem actually goes deep to our bones. It's a daily reality, a struggle that we're all familiar with. And it's not just your actions, um, I'm sure some of you, myself included, 
have seen areas that maybe their parents did things or their grandparents did things or character flaws in their parents or grandparents that somehow now as you become of age, you're like, why am I, why am I doing that? Like, that, I knew that that was wrong when they did it and now I'm doing the exact same thing. And so it goes deeper than even your individual choices on a daily basis. And there's this quote from this book I've been reading called The Emotionally Healthy Leader that's sort of tongue-in-cheek and sort of a joke, but I think it sort of communicates profoundly that even if Jesus is in our heart, Grandpa is in your bones. So there's this there's deep um, lineage of going our own way that sticks with us from generation to generation to generation. And... It makes me get really unsettled. It's really popular for Christian speakers, pseudo-Christian speakers to say, well, just stop talking about sin because that's not uplifting. Um, it just demeans people. And I think as I was preparing, it, it occurred to me, well, that's because they've confused what the deepest truth is. Like, If you make the sin the deepest truth, then yeah, it's demeaning for someone to be faced with their brokenness. But if we're trying to be liberated and freed from that, then how can we not talk about this? So it kind of reminded me of that part, if you guys were... We didn't cover Jeremiah in our Minor Prophet series, but there's a lot of similar things said. And there's this one verse in Jeremiah where he says, sort of mourning for the brokenness of, of his people, that he dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And it's this image of someone comes in with a broken limb and you just send them on their merry way with a bandage and say, it'll be okay. No resetting the bone, no putting a cast on it, just let them go off and, and do their thing. Because to go beyond that would just be too involved. It would be too uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about that. This light assurance that does nothing to cleanse, to renew, or to liberate us. And it's a well-trodden dead end, the it's okay path, that many of us on a daily basis go down. And then there's one more path I want to talk about. One more option. Um, see, we often try to offset the bad with the good. And to say, well, may, for David this was offering sacrifices. Like, I can just keep doing what I was doing and bring my best offering to God. And you can kind of imagine this inner monologue David's having where he's like, how, how much would it take? How much would I have to give to make this go away? Um, but he knows too well, admitting in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He says, I know what you want for me, and it's not that. Maybe for us it's our, yeah, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's how you try to offset those bad things with good things. Maybe you had a hard conversation where you hurt someone, and so you're going to tell that person a bunch of nice things. And the reality is that's not bad in and of itself. It's actually good to say nice things to people. Um, but the test is how you react if the hurt is still there. Is your heart saying, wait, wait, you can't be mad anymore because I did that thing for you. I said that thing for you that, that wiped it away. But the reality is that's not how relationships work. It's not a zero-sum game. 
It's easy to think if I do enough today, maybe I can blot out my own sin. But we weep when the stains are still there at night. And I should note that we're not saying that God doesn't want sacrifice because later there will be lots of joyful sacrifice. God's just saying, I won't accept this now because it would be hollow, pretentious worship. See, God never receives anyone based on what they bring to him. It's never about that. Only by his abundant mercy. So not only are these efforts to offset and to zero out the balance hollow, as long as we're doing that, as long as we're spinning our wheels, we actually plunge deeper into bondage. Because it's just, in reality, another form of going our own way, which started this whole cycle to begin with. So we've tried those two paths, right? It's okay path, relativizing, reducing it. And we've tried this moral and religious activity, um, doing good deeds, trying to make the world a better place, thinking that we can sway the, the scale. So what, if any, deliverance did David find? Did he find the cleansing that he sought? Is that still a question mark? Yes, he did. And it's simple. Honesty. Or to use our liturgical word, confession. See, David knows what God does desire in this moment in verse 6. It's, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It says, Lord, you are after inward integrity, a willing integrity, a willingness to explore what's going on in my own heart. You want me to bring it before you. You don't want me to figure out a way to handle it on my own or wipe it away. And where does that inner integrity lead? To the only sacrifice that God actually ever wants from us. It's to what he says in verse 17. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise a healthy orientation to reality. And this is why confession is crucial to worship, because anything else is a lie. Anything else is us coming to God under pretension, and it's hollow, and it assumes that we are something, that we, that we are in a place that we're not, and that our past is different from what it is. And over and over again, God calls us to worship in spirit and truth. You might say all this talk of a broken spirit, though, this is very heavy, very heavy-handed. Doesn't that make God violent or sadistic? And I would say yes, except no. This type of breaking isn't harmful. So it's not as if you're being obliterated by exposing this brokenness. It's not as if you're losing that truest part about yourself. See, though painful as this process can be, it's actually restorative. It's like a physician re-breaking a broken bone that's healed all gnarly so that it can heal properly. See, the result of being broken, as we see in verse 8, 
is so we can hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And I love how it's rendered in the message translation, which is kind of technically a paraphrase, but some things it gets more clearly. Um, And it says, set these once broken bones to dancing. So it's healing to the the result of dancing. And I love that image because you can imagine trying to dance on an injury like what we talked about in Jeremiah, where you've just been sent on your way, it was bandaged up, no one really looked at the severity of it, and you actually end up having a far greater wound, a far greater injury um, and trauma to yourself because we avoided talking about what was broken. And we said we were being kind when actually we were being negligent. But when we confess an inward truth, Jesus enters into our pain. He's our great physician, coming into our inner being with his inward truth, teaching wisdom to our secret heart. And he gently, not oppressively, not violently, gently reveals what's broken, teaching our heart wisdom, renewing us in our truest sense to the truest self that he created us to be. That we are beloved and that we belong to him. Uncovering that day after day as it becomes clearer and more defined and more resonant in our hearts as we confess and turn back to him. See, this is the true healing which makes us break out in dancing. And these are just some of the things that happens with the true healing. Created me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Give me your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O Lord, open my lips. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And so the last two verses actually turn and do something really interesting. See, this whole time we've been focused on one man's prayer, one man's plea, and it can feel very individualistic, which is sort of the opposite of what we're talking about and coming to a gathering to be formed together. But here, just at the very end, it turns to a communal plea for all of Israel. In verse 18, it says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And this is interesting because most scholars agree that in the oral tradition in which the Psalms began, this was actually added after David. So this was Israel repeating, sharing, living the Psalms that David wrote, inhabiting them with their own stories, and actually going through that journey of confession with him. And it became part of their stories as a result. And this is the power of liturgy, is that as we come and we believe and we sing and we talk about how amazing Jesus is and what he's done for us, is that this actually forms us as a people. And years from now, 
our, our stories are added into this greater story of what God's doing in all of creation. And so this would have, to give context, this would have been during Israel's exile, during probably, well, it's hard to say which is the worst, but one of the worst seasons in Israel's history. Um, after the first temple was wiped out and destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, but before, if you guys remember, in Nehemiah, Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia actually made a decree for Israel to go back to Jerusalem. And so this is when Nehemiah would rally Israel to rebuild its walls and the temple. And that catalyzed a revival in Israel. So the, this part of the psalm happened somewhere before that culmination. It's like a little mini prophecy here in the Psalms. And it's important to know why the Jews were so desperate for this, right? Like, why do they care about walls being rebuilt? What's the big deal? It seems like that's sort of distant from the hard issues we were just talking about. See, they realized that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down for a reason. The Babylonians weren't absolute. They weren't somehow, they didn't somehow thwart God's purposes and just overrule him. God allowed that to happen. It was God's indictment on the rampant injustice and oppression that was happening in Israel. He said, if if you guys aren't going to follow and, and live the beautiful way that I gave you to live, that's actually going to lead to your flourishing, I'm going to let that happen. I'm going to let the results of that take place until you, you come back, until you see what has happened here. See, it revealed for them just how far they had gone, that maybe what seemed as a trivial act of like, we're actually going to turn from God to focusing on other things, actually had all these unintended consequences that spilled out in every area of life between their neighbor, between their spouse, between um, their coworkers, where all of a sudden they had no reason to treat anyone with grace or forgiveness. They for, it was all for themselves. Why, why would they do anything other than that if they're, if, they're not live, if they're no longer living turned towards God? See, for them, rebuilt, the rebuilding of walls represented God once again coming to dwell with his people, his good kingdom being established. And this would, be an, a, this would mean a new temple dedication like in creation and like the first temple under King Solomon where there was a party and people were excited and remembered God's grace and love for them and all that he had done for them and how his ways were so much better than their ways. Um, see, they were a people ready for God's presence. They had lived under this oppressive rule for so long. Um, and much the way our broken bones are rebuilt and ready for God's spirit to dwell in us. See, from the beginning of exile under Syria, this was Israel's hope, right? That God would bring his kingdom to cleanse, renew, and liberate them from oppression. That dwelling with them, he would reestablish his loving rule and reign. And they understand now what the prophets are saying, that this oppression spills out of that turning from God. And they are broken down themselves, spiritually and physically, just like the walls of Zion. And they come to God broken and contrite, not under pretense, but in truth in their inner being, just as David was. And God answers this plea. He's good to Zion. He does build up their walls. There is much sacrificing and worship now as the temple is consecrated, not to earn God's favor or to say it's okay or to offset any of that brokenness, but because they had just seen God restore them completely from utter brokenness. And how could they not celebrate? 
but this was only a foretaste of the kingdom. Much like all of the other points where God's rule and reign is manifest throughout the story, it didn't last. People turned back to their own way. They went back to going their own way and rejecting God, doing their own thing. But the king had not yet come. But 500 years later, Jesus did come. But he didn't come as the warlord Messiah, overthrowing just the latest in a long line of oppressors. He came as a suffering Messiah. He conquered the oppression of sin for all time, not through aggression, not by wiping them out, but by enduring and laying his life down on a Roman cross. He came broken and contrite, not for himself, but for the sins of the whole world, for us. He cleansed us in a way that we could not, blotting out our sin through the washing of his own blood. His heart was broken so that he could create in us a clean heart. His body and spirit were broken down so that we can hear joy and so that our bones can be rebuilt to dancing. See, he delivered us from guilt by being condemned on our behalf. That looming shadow we talked about at the beginning that stood over you has no power you and no power over you in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free. And finally, he cast out of God. He was cast out of God's presence so that we never would be. So God's spirit now dwelling in us forever as we are his new temple. And the celebration is, continues. So that no matter where you're coming from, today you can be forgiven. Because when we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And maybe you need to hear that for the first time this morning. That this forgiveness is offered to you in Christ. And I would just ask you and offer it to you. Receive cleansing, renewal, liberation. Jesus lived, he died, and he was raised for you. And if that's you, if you're processing, is this, is this something that could actually free me from the oppression that I feel as I walk out my daily life? Can Jesus actually reach into my story and pull me out of that? Please come talk to me or Trip or someone here that you know. We would love to process that with you. Maybe you know Jesus, but you feel convicted of the paths that you take to avoid him to avoid that inward truth, to avoid that surrender, to let him heal you. And I would just ask you, ask him, ask him to heal you. Trust him enough to invite him into those, those areas that you've avoided for so long. Maybe you are overcome and have been walking for a long time believing that the brokenness in your life is the truest thing about you. It's not. You are beloved by God. You belong to him. You are his beloved child. And I would just ask him in, in this next set of worship to affirm that on your hearts, that you would believe that. And maybe you feel led to confession to a specific person. Maybe there's something that's been going on in your life between you and a person. And this is the time to go to that person and be reconciled um, because he is faithful to give and so, forgive and so we can be faithful to forgive one another. So whatever it is, um, I would just implore you not to cut short this confession in your true worship. 
this is the time to begin, for this to become a normative act in your life where you look at yourself each morning and say, God, go with me to my inner, inner being. Bring your inward truth. Teach wisdom to my secret heart. Reveal what's broken and, and heal my broken bones to dancing. Bring that restoration in my life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you do not heal us lightly. But you go to the very core of who we are. And you lift us up out of the mire and you set the broken bones right, and not in a way where they're just good enough, but in a way where we can dance. And we do dance because you've given us clean hearts, and you've liberated us, and you've renewed our spirit. And I just pray that you would draw us to worship now, and you would draw us to respond in whatever way you're calling us to, um, whether that be for the first time coming to you, Jesus, and laying down our life and our pain and our sin, and inviting you to come and change us, or whether that be for the twenty. 30th, 50th, a millionth time of us saying, I've still gone my own way. Why do I keep doing this? Jesus, forgive me, heal me, come into my life and do this work um, for me and with me. Um, I pray that you would be with us and that you would, uh, yeah, just invite us to worship this week as we remember um, your goodness for us, remember all that you've done in shedding your blood for us and healing us and forgiving us and, and liberating us from our sin. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.